This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. We've talked a lot on this program about the political manifestations of fundamentalist Christian viewpoints in American politics. But the religious origins of these ideas are also important to understand. And right now, there is no bigger force within American Christian fundamentalism than Pentecostalism, a movement of unaffiliated churches that together represent the fastest growing Christian sect in the world. The Pentecostalism is a broad movement with no centralized authorities handing down doctrines, and many church organizations with history of labeling themselves as Pentecostalism now are refusing to do so. And a lot of people, to the extent that they know anything about Pentecostalism, uh, are associated more with just ministers who are famous for scandals or for their feel-good music and Instagram posts. So answering the question of what Pentecostalism is from a religious standpoint and a social standpoint is thus a trickier question than it may seem. So joining me today to talk about the theology and politics of the Pentecostal movement is Elle Hardy. She's a freelance journalist whose book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, has just been published here in the United States. So thanks for being here today, Al. Thanks for having me. All right. So as I said in the intro, I think a lot of people are aware that Pentecostalism exists, but in terms of what it believes or more particulars about it, I think people generally, unless you're adjacent to it, don't know a lot about it. When did Pentecostalism get started? It got started in the United States and it's been growing all over the world. But just tell us a little bit about the early history and and what you found with that. The person who's essentially considered the founder of Pentecostalism, William J. Seymour, the son of freed slaves from Louisiana. Uh, He had a revival called the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles, and that's considered the founding moment of Pentecostalism. But I actually think that his mentor, who was a white man in in Kansas, actually probably has a better claim. Pentecostalism was really coming out of the very American nature of, of religion in the late 19th century. Where Mormonism and other things came from, it was people moving across the country, that frontier culture bringing in new ideas, but it really came out of Methodism. And and it was really about harnessing, uh, for want of a better word, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was new and radical, and it was speaking to people's needs at the time, and it's speaking to people's needs now. And and that's really what is behind this explosive growth. It speaks to people's needs here and now. And largely from 1901, 1906 through to now, it's the idea of health and wealth. It's the idea that you can have a good life in this life too. So it really is the faith of the global working poor. And when it started with William J. Seymour, these were pretty radical ideas. It was speaking in tongues. It was having the Holy Spirit descend upon you. So you're born again, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have a full immersion baptism usually. But then they're filled again with the Holy Spirit. And that comes comes through things such as um you get the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, uh, miracles, healing, and most notably speaking in tongues. And that's what mm-hmm. the Pentecostals were really keen on. And that's what they're most famous for today, even though definitely not as many people speak in tongues anymore. But just for those who don't know what that concept is, what does the idea of speaking in tongues? So it, it means that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and that spirit is speaking through you in a language that you don't understand or that that you might only understand in that moment. The original Pentecostals thought that they were being given the tongues to go and preach and convert people in foreign lands. That's what happened in the Bible. That's where the day of Pentecost comes from. When the Holy Ghost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Ghost came um, 
down to the disciples and, and gave them this gift of tongues to go out and convert people in foreign lands. And so the original Pentecostals thought that's what they were getting. They thought they were speaking in Chinese and a lot of them set sail for places like China and died horrible deaths of dysentery and, and other things because they were so ill-prepared. They really thought that they'd been given this gift and the end of days were coming and they had to come out and help all these poor people who, who hadn't heard the good news. These days it's much more of a personal commune with God or, or God speaking through you or, or a personal conversation that you're having. And, and it definitely doesn't have that power over people anymore, but often because it is a part of that conversion process and the conversion being born again is really significant for Pentecostals and, and for anyone of the evangelical faith, because it becomes a real clear demarcation of life before and after they found God. And because so many people are converting, when they're converting, they're taking on God. It's often a matter of getting their life together. It's often them saying, I've started going to this church. I'm, you know, going to stop drinking. I'm going to try and knuckle down and provide better for my family and things like that. So people really have that before and after moment. So when the spirit descends on them, they might really feel as though they are having this particular moment of, of commune with, with God or something like that. And, and it winds up being very profound, but it isn't as widely practiced as it used to be, or it isn't as critical to the faith, but it's still very much there. Yeah. And the traditional Christian interpretation of the gift of tongues as a doctrine, it, it was to speak in language that actually exists to actually spread the gospel. That was the point of it. And so Pentecostalism as a movement, it, it's sort of a reinterpretation of a lot of traditional Christianity, while also claiming that it is the actual restoration of the ancient Christianity. I think that's something that you found in your research, that people see themselves as the true heirs of, of Jesus, right? Yeah, but I think everyone does, don't they? <laughs> everyone that's that's pretty into their faith thinks that they're doing it in the right way. So yeah, that's an interesting question. Probably, you know, one of the really notable things that, that Pente modern Pentecostals are doing, Hillsong's probably the most famous modern Pentecostal congregation, even though they don't say they're Pentecostal anymore. They dropped that label and, and left the Assemblies of God a while ago, but they're, they're charismatic and they say they're non-denominational now, but they're, mm -hmm. they're a spiritual. Well, actually, can you step back just to say what is the Assemblies of God for people who don't know what that is? Oh, uh, sure. So that was one of the original founding umbrella movements that came out of early Pentecostalism when they first really started calling themselves that. And it was mm -hmm. quite famously, maybe a bit similar to the Southern Baptist Convention or something like that. Around the world, they would often be a, a collective. So there's no Pentecostal Pope or Archbishop of Canterbury, but this was as close as you'd have to some sort of hierarchy and something keeping people in line. And as I think we can go into later on, part of the rolling series of crises that we're seeing at the moment is because these charismatic leaders, charismatic in temperament, as well as theologically, are just going out and doing whatever works to get people through the door. And they've been very off the leash. And we're starting to see in churches like Hillsong that that lack of oversight is really coming back to bite them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so your book, just tell us, you, you reported on Pentecostals in different countries. Tell us a little bit about which countries you were focusing on and why you did. Sure. So I think I should remember my publicity spiel here. 12 countries and eight US states, I think. So I, I went to the different corners of the earth where Pentecostalism is really kicking off and changing and making a difference. wasn't able to go to all corners of the earth because a fair bit of my research was during the pandemic. But I wanted to tell the, the different stories in different places. If, if there's two countries in the world that probably best represent Pentecostalism now, it would be Brazil and Nigeria. Brazil was, I think, 
There were 3% of the country were Pentecostal in 1980. It's now 30% and really growing fast. I think it could be in the next decade if, if numbers continue, it'll overtake Catholicism. And that's pretty wild. 500 years ago that the Catholic Church came to Brazil and in 40 years, they've taken a third of the flock. The Brazil angle also... The rise of Pentecostalism there is directly tied to um, the political career of Jair Bolsonaro. That's who voted for him. They were very influential in his election, definitely. Incidentally, so was WhatsApp. WhatsApp has been changed globally now because there was such a misinformation campaign that was being used by that. And it's not like it's not like Facebook where you can see it happening. These are private numbers. So I think you can only forward a message onto 32 people or something now because in Brazil, everyone was using it to send these really unhinged rumors about that. Schools now are going to make your five-year-old boy start wearing a dress and become a girl. And, and there was all that, that really awful moral panic stuff that unfortunately we're seeing pop up in the US just this week at the moment. And, and that was certainly very central to his rise. And he played into it. His wife is Pentecostal. He is still officially Catholic as far as I know. But he went during the election campaign and got dunked in the Jordan River and said that he'd been born again. And that was certainly speaking to not just the... Uh, Brazilian people, but also the evangelical caucus in Brazil, which is really growing in in influence and popularity. And it was saying, I'm I'm with the program. And unfortunately, for the people of Brazil, it worked and and he got elected. So you looked at Brazil and then you were mentioning, you briefly mentioned Nigeria. Why don't you talk a little bit about that for a sec? Yeah. So Pentecostalism is huge in Nigeria. It's Hard to get exact numbers, but but the country is more or less 50-50 Christian Muslim. And, and this is really, it's always been fairly prominent, but certainly since the 70s, Pentecostalism has really just swept through so many Christian denominations and is really the, by far the most powerful denomination there. And what's really interesting, my friend Ebenezer Obadare, who's a really brilliant Nigerian-American sociologist, he's at Kansas State, I believe, he wrote about this and he helped me with the research for my book. And what Pentecostals have really done, Nigeria is a very complex country between the Muslim North and, and Christians in the South. And Pentecostals, some of these really big, powerful Pentecostal preachers are effectively becoming kingmakers now. They don't want the power themselves, but Muslim politicians, Christian politicians, anyone has to come and bend the knee to, to get their, their say-so. And, and what they ask for in return is to define the world in spiritual terms. It's to talk about things in, in terms of spiritual warfare. It's to talk about battles of good and evil. It's to be able to demonize your opponents, not simply say that they're your opponent and their idea is bad, to say that they are evil and possessed. So, and I'm sorry, I, I want to make sure that everybody can keep up with the terms here. So you mentioned spiritual warfare. What does that mean? So it's an idea that came from a very influential American Pentecostal figure, C. Peter Wagner, who died a few years ago. And, and it came out of his time as a missionary in Argentina, understanding Pentecostalism in the global South, which is where most of the world's Pentecostals are, and understanding that it needs to fit in and feel and look like the local culture. And a lot of places, particularly in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, for, for example, local folklore and custom is, is much more spiritually defined than, say, in the West. And people will talk about t- things in terms of good and evil. So he came up that there was this idea that we're in a a spiritual contest where the bad spirits have come down into the earth and we basically need to get rid of them to create the kingdom for Jesus to come back. But he came up with three different ideas of spiritual warfare. So there's the, the kind of 
personal level where you're possessed by something usually in the form of illness. And then there's a cult level. So that is new ageism sorts of things. But then there's strategic level spiritual warfare. And that's the really big thing. And and that's an idea that that you're starting to see really creep into America and particularly the radical right Republicans. You'll start to hear them talking in terms of spiritual warfare. Most notably, Paula White Kane did, she was talking about demon sperm and things like that. That's pure spiritual warfare. So strategic level spiritual warfare says that institutions can be possessed. So that's really taken on a, a combined very well with MAGAism, shall we say. So it's saying the Democratic Party is possessed. Originally, it was meant to be like, oh, the Las Vegas Strip is possessed. Now it's the Democratic Party. It's your local school board. And it's really empowering believers to go and wrest control of these spirits. So you're getting people charging into school board meetings with guns and saying, I hear that people are reading Harry Potter in this school and we have to take on. And it's really become quite a dangerous idea. It's just saying to people, you've got to stop this anywhere you can. This is evil personified right here. And yeah, by saying that whole institutions and whole areas can be possessed has been a, a very dangerous turn that we've seen in Christian ideology in the last few years. Yeah, exactly. And and it's important also to, you know, look at where when these ideas become more regnant, what can happen when you believe in literal spirit doings in the physical world. Unfortunately, it's common in a number of African countries to believe that various people are witches and people will get attacked for supposedly being a witch. And it's led to, unfortunately, people getting hurt or killed. Um, it's really terrible. Yeah, and one of Pentecostalism's great strengths is that it looks and sounds and feels like the local culture. So Pentecostalism will look very different in Korea to Nigeria to Brazil. And that's why people like it. It feels much more authentic. It feels much more, often it's working class. It's bubbling up from below with you. It's the people's faith. It's not brought to you on high by some white priest, you know, that's been educated in Europe. And that is very much a strength and what a lot of people like about it. But it does tend to take on a lot of demonology and folklore. And you can get to a bit literalism with this kind of stuff that you, you can find justification for anything in the bible spiritual warfare comes from ephesians six twelve. speaks of a struggle which is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms so you can take that to apply to almost anything but it does tend to breed a certain amount of or it, it tends to appeal to people potentially with a paranoid view of the world or a, a very suspicious of, of elites and things like that. So you can understand how it's becoming very much an ideology of the modern moment, whether you are in a very poor town in Nigeria or whether you're in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. And I'm actually going to play just a little video of that. You, you mentioned Paula White. Paula White was actually a a senior member of the Trump administration. A lot of people don't know that. But she was a spiritual advisor. I don't think she was an actual member. Of the- she actually got an official title. She had some office in the, some title in the office of public liaison, actually, believe it or not. Oh, um, really? So she, okay. Yeah, she was his faith advisor first, and then she became a government employee toward <sighs> the end of the administration. Everyone's Pretty- yeah. And this clip that I've got here, it's it's Paula White referring to, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen her talking about demonic pregnancies. Deployed to hurt this nation in the name of Jesus. Forgive us. Can you hear it? 
for our sins. Come on, I need you guys to pray. We cancel every surprise from the witchcraft in the marine kingdom. Any hex, any spell, any witchcraft, any spirit of control, any Jezebel, anything that the enemy desires through spells, through witchcraft, through any way that is manipulation, demonic manipulation, we curse that. We break it according to the word of God in the name of Jesus. We come against the marine kingdom. We come against the animal kingdom. Any The woman that rides upon the waters, we break the power in the name of Jesus. And we declare that any strange winds, any strange winds that have been sent to hurt the church, sent against this nation, sent against our president, sent against myself, sent against others. We break it by the superior blood of Jesus right now. In the name of Jesus, we arrest every infirmity, affliction, fatigue, weariness, weakness, fear, sickness, any self-righteousness, any self-serving action, God. Let pride fall. Let pride fall. In the name of Jesus, we command all satanic pregnancies to miscarry right now. We declare that anything that's been conceived in satanic wombs, that it'll miscarry. It will not be able to carry forth any plan of destruction any plan of harm all right yeah so that's that's a really disturbing video so maybe there there are different components there can you talk a little bit about some of that based on what you know that's just a, a very typical pentecostal moment there the show is a big part so it's really about getting people into a frenzy the marine spirits has become quite a big thing what does that mean what do, what do they mean by that i can't it's i think it's something that came out of latin america but i, I can't remember exactly but it, it's just been adopted wholly by these people they've spent a lot of time recently for something that i'm working on at the moment in people who practice spiritual warfare and believe in spiritual warfare and in the united states i mean it's just it's just sick people this is people who can't get health care and it's much easier than perhaps living with the fact that your country's screwing you over your boss is screwing you over you're never going to be able to afford the health care that you need whether it's mental health or some sort of physical ailment and it's bankruptcy or you just have no hope so yeah i get why people turn to these kind of things and and it's always just asthma diabetes schizophrenia things like that people are are trying to seek help within spiritual warfare it's throwing a lot of ideas at the wall and seeing which one sticks and yeah like i said i i understand why it's really becoming prominent in the united states especially at the moment yeah and and we'll get into that uh a little bit more but i did also want to just circle back on some of the history. So after they got started on much smaller scale in the beginning of the 20th century, they, they had some pretty significant growth in the southern United States, but things didn't really take off until the 1960s and 70s. And one of the things that's interesting about the history is that there was a lot of intersection with the hippie counterculture within Pentecostalism, that it absorbed a lot of the ideas or phraseology and things that they were interested in. Can you talk about that a little bit and and some of these people that brought some of those hippie ideas into Christianity? Again, the original hippie movement was explicitly anti-religious in many cases. Yeah, so what we call the second wave of the Pentecostal movement, and it was basically at the end of World War II, some new ideas uh, started to emerge that you didn't have to wait for God's blessings to come on you. You could bring them on demand. And that the laying of hands and things like that really started taking off. But this really got going in the 1960s. A young man called Lonnie Frisbee, 
who was a hippie, took tons of LSD, had had a pretty awful life to begin with. Like a, a lot of Americans, especially at that time, had gone to church and had a vaguely Christian upbringing. He went up to Haight-Ashbury and he was there for the summer of love. And like a lot of people saw it for what it was, which was there were horrific rapes. It was very consumer-led. It was a huge cultural moment. But for people that went up there, a lot of people, it wasn't a very good time. It was quite horrific. It was this extreme just letting everything off the leash and then being quite horrific and so he came back down the California coast and was really looking for something more but he was yeah he was a dude of his time he had the huge beard and the flares and was playing music and various reasons came into the orbit of a Pentecostal preacher and started um, speaking at this guy's church and and singing and bringing this basically hippie culture and Christianizing it and it turned out a lot of people wanted that Dudes in California, whole communities of surfers just going into the ocean together and getting baptised with Lonnie and some other people. And then the movement started taking off in music and, and acting communities. So John Wimber, along with C. Peter Wagner, the spiritual warfare guy I mentioned earlier, John Wimber is, is probably the other most influential American Pentecostal thinker. He was in a band that wound up becoming the Righteous Brothers. He actually wound up being the manager of, of the Righteous Brothers. And he grew up Midwestern, fourth generation non-believer. He had a crisis. He was just drinking and taking drugs and living this insane rock and roll life and had a personal crisis and went to a Bible study as a broken person, but then took it on and, and became a very hardcore, charismatic Pentecostal. And he started bringing ideas in about, you know, putting on a show which was what Pentecostals have always been very good at. But he had this quite famous speech about when I was doing the devil's work, so before he was converted, the devil let me do his stuff. He let me drink and take drugs and sleep with women and do whatever. He said, now I'm a Christian. I want to be able to do God's stuff. So he was really famous for saying, want to do the stuff, which was direct participation in the miracles. It was healing. It was all of the stuff that really gets people going about Pentecostalism and he really changed that so it, so it really became Christianity on demand and when you think about it that really aligns very well with the changing nature of America during the 60s hippie culture might have been coming on there but consumer culture was really getting going then as well and it really started riding the wave and from there we that's how we get to, to churches like Hillsong which is very much about about the product and about the customer always being right and if you buy a ticket you deserve to see a show and all those sorts of things. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you mentioned Hillsong. For people who've never heard of them, they're primarily known for their music. In fact, they literally took their name from a concert series that they started. They weren't originally called that. And, and music is like the through line. The one thing that all of these groups really have in common is the centrality of, of music in the worship. Using that as a way of motivating people to create feelings that they are then told are confirmation of the truth. In other words, that feelings are reality, that if you feel good about something, therefore it is true. One of the people that you talk about in, in the book, she's a gospel singer and also a, a megachurch pastor in Brazil who led a very strange life. Talk about her a little bit, if you could, please. Sure. My Portuguese and my Brazilian Portuguese is terrible. So I think her name is pronounced Flodelish, spelt Flo Flodelis in English. She was a, a congressperson, I suppose you'd, you'd call her as the equivalent in Brazil. She came from the favelas, like most Brazilian Pentecostal preachers. She was... And that's the slums, the urban slums, just yeah. for those who don't know the term. Yeah. So she was married, young, had three kids. Her, her and her husband split up when she was in her early 30s. 
And she wound up taking all these children in from the favelas that might have been orphaned or, or things like that, including one young man called Anderson, who was her teenage daughter at the time's boyfriend. She took him in. Then she wound up getting together with him. It's complicated trying to uh, think of the actual proper names here. So it was her daughter's boyfriend who she adopted as part of a, a 55 children adoption. So it was her adopted son and then they wound up getting together and getting married. So she wound up marrying her adopted son who was the ex of her daughter. Yeah. She was a gospel singer and she does have, have quite a beautiful voice. And they went on to form uh, a church movement and he was the pastor and they were very charismatic and, and very good looking. And then she ran for, for parliament. And then one night, a couple of years ago, he was murdered after they got home from dinner. And there is a, I won't give away the ending, but there was a very long um, saga. It still is going going on in, in Brazil at the moment about who killed him and why. Yeah, it's really a disturbing story, frankly. So she's one of the, the preacher musicians that you talk about. But we've mentioned this church called Hillsong, which if you're not in a large urban area, the only chance you've really heard of them is like on YouTube or something like that, that you may have stumbled on some songs. So what is Hillsong? They've been in the news a lot. Yeah, so I mentioned a lot because it's on my mind. Most people would know them not from YouTube. It was Justin Bieber's church for a while, and he most notably with... My audience doesn't really follow Justin Bieber, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's most famous for Carl Lentz, who was the Hillsong, New York City preacher, who, who got Justin Bieber at a bad moment in his life. I think he'd been in trouble for trashing hotel rooms and various things. And some NBA players started going to Hillsong, New York. And then Justin Bieber was born again by a preacher, Carl Lentz, and they were photographed everywhere together, shirtless, ripped, tattoos, trendy sunglasses, the lot. And it became most famous through that. And so it's a, a very large Australian church that started in 1983 with 45 people in the west of Sydney, where I grew up, in a small little church. And they just had a very expansionist mindset from the beginning. Pentecostalism and evangelicalism, I should say, in Australia is is very tiny, especially until Hillsong. There certainly were always a small amount, but in Australia it's considered um, unusual. It's considered a very American faith. Most Australians, if, if they are Christian, it's probably about 50% Catholic through Irish, Italian um, ancestry and probably half Church of England through general English ancestry. So uh, there just isn't that culture. But Brian Houston, the founder, really wanted to expand and they started making this really cool music so a former child star Darlene Check was the lead singer at the church as it started growing and and they started producing music that sounds like whatever's on commercial radio at the time and they've really moved through musical styles so when you hear things like Billie Eilish on the radio at the moment, Hillsong are making uh, music that sounds a bit like that. And they've just been really good at just moving with the times, making music that sounds like what you're hearing in the secular world. And it's a way of saying that church can be uplifting, it can be good. It doesn't have to be like Reverend Lovejoy from The Simpsons that's boring you into submission. It's good music that shows that you can be a Christian person in the secular world. You can have the good stuff too. They're also very famous for their sermons, which are really uplifting. They sound much more like Tony Robbins than Pope John Paul II. And that's what they really pioneered. And it's just about going to church, feeling good. They're just taking two hours out of your Sunday. Everyone's busy working two jobs or studying or doing the side hustle or whatever. So it's about you go here, you get uplifted. They've always said that Pentecostals preach for Monday, not for Sunday. So it's about inspiring you to go through your next week and live your life. And then you walk out of church and that's kind of it. You feel good about yourself. And then you get on with your day. And Hillsong, with the music, with the, the sermon style, with the fact that it's in big cities, that it has the celebrity following, they're really good at social media. So you, you might follow your local preacher 
on Instagram and every morning when you wake up without fail, they'll have some inspirational quote or something. And Hillsong has just been really great at understanding what modern religion is in the modern world. And unfortunately, a lot of that comes out of what we were talking earlier, which is that consumer culture. The customer mm-hmm. is always right. People want to get something. People want bang for their buck. Mm-hmm. And so they're buying into this Hillsong stuff and they're getting what they want. The other thing is that you mentioned the consumer culture. There is a kind of a less noticed aspect of Pentecostal theology that I was pleased to see that you did pick up on because a lot of people don't mention it is this idea that it really taken from self-help books of the 1950s, including Norman Vincent Peale, this idea that if you can name it, you can claim it. What does that mean? Sure. That's basically what prosperity gospel is. And you mentioned Norman Vincent Peale, prosperity gospel, as we know, it basically comes out of his book. He was a preacher in New York City in the early 1950s. And so he most famously wrote The the Power of Positive Thinking. So that is basically the idea that if you think and wish hard enough for something, it'll come your way. And that has some, that goes back to new thought in America in the 19th century, but he really picked up on it. And interestingly, someone who was in his congregation was young. Donald Trump's father was quite taken with this preacher and and used to take his family every weekend. And it's kind of wild how much you can see that today. But prosperity gospel really came out of that. It's the idea that you can think your way into good things. Pentecostalism is, as I mentioned earlier, it's really not that hellfire preaching. It's really inspirational. It's really self-help-like. And it really just is that positive, only you can turn this around. Australians seem to have come up with a lot of bad ideas lately. So we've given you guys Hillsong and The Secret. Do you remember The Secret? In the kind of early 2000s, it was like on Oprah. And it's basically, if you just wish hard enough for something, it'll come to you. But that came out of this same thing as well. And it's what you put out into the universe, you get back. And so the idea of prosperity gospel is that it's that you give money to your church, you pray hard enough, you do all those sorts of things and you'll get it back many fold your way. But I suppose really interesting, I mean, prosperity gospel is pretty big in the global South and understandably so if you're dirt poor and you have nothing, you sure as hell aren't getting heads no matter what you do in a lot of places because inequality is just baked in and, and poverty is just baked in. So I, I certainly don't blame people for taking on these ideas. But quite interestingly, in, in Brazil, where prosperity gospel is a really big part of the Pentecostal faith there, there's some evidence that it works. People that go to evangelical churches tend to get their lives together. Like I mentioned, that it's not just your kind of stock standard Catholicism that you might have grown up with. For most people that are Pentecostal in Brazil now, you are making the choice to be born again. You are making, having that moment, you are having that clear demarcation of your life before and after. And a lot of people, it is almost like going to an AA or something like that. You're making a commitment and you're going every week and people in the church are noticing if you're not there. And you get into this community and people just seem to get their lives together. And then they give testimony yeah. that, that, that because of all this, because of all their faith and their seeding and stuff, they got their life together. And so it pulls more and more people into their orbit. So there is quite strangely some evidence that it works. It, it's creating a network. And, and we should definitely talk about this aspect. So the roots of Pentecostalism as this sort of revamped Christian fundamentalism, the roots were in poverty-stricken people, the lower-income people. That's where it came from. And that's where the big growth is, especially in Latin America and Africa. It's in some ways the last resort for people who societal institutions have failed. The government is corrupt or non-functioning and they can't get a job. So there's this church telling them that not only can we Whether or not you believe the idea of seeding works or not, at the very least, they are giving them some sort of social connection. 
which they may not have had at all before. Yeah, tithing is essentially taxation. And in a lot of places, in Nigeria, Brazil, Favela, South Africa, places like this, you're often not really getting anything. If you are even paying tax, you're not really getting anything from the state, whereas you are from your local church. For starters, you're getting healthcare by way of miracle, these promises of prosperity, the community aspect. So if you've got like a, a tiny little... Um, street vendor business. People from your church are going to patron you. Most churches, and it's not unique to Pentecostalism, most churches might have a small medical clinic on site. They might have some schooling, childcare. It's really popping up as, as a big thing, which is essentially you're a single mom or, or a family and you're working two, three jobs to, to try and keep food on the table. What are your kids doing after school while you're working on these jobs? Or they're going to be running around in the streets you don't want them doing that. If you're going to your church, well, they can go to music practice one afternoon, soccer practice another afternoon, and it's essentially becoming childcare through these churches. So they really are parastate institutions forming in a lot of places in the world. Even, even in the West, this is the same as well, because people people are just being let down by states and quite deliberately so. And of course, then various evangelicals and, and Pentecostals that, that get into state that are politicians will say, that's part of the point. They don't want the state offering these things. They say, go to your local church and find your community and they'll help you out. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy but, but certainly most of the appeal globally is in these services and whether by miracle or, or materially that these services that the churches are giving and just helping people get through their lives because for most people life sucks it's pretty hard and um, mm-hmm. giving you a bit of uplift and and giving you a bit of the stuff you need here as well as in the next life yeah and so yeah whether you believe you had been healed or anything like that at the very least you're getting an entertainment show so in other words you can't afford to go to some big celebrity concert you can get all the lights and magic by going to church and it's free in many cases well yeah and it's it's the uplift of it it's making you feel connected to people around you and and your faith and your pastor and yeah people just People don't want to feel like shit. So I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but that uplift is so important. And that's such a big thing for people going in and feeling uplifted again on Sunday morning and ready to tackle the week. And that has that, that is a really huge thing in Pentecostal churches. It has been since the beginning and it very much is now. Yeah. And it, it's something that a lot of the other faiths or sects, they're in many cases not really responding to these innovations that the various localized Pentecostal um, churches are coming up with. But you did talk about a little bit about an Islamic congregation in, in Nigeria. What are they doing? Sure. So it's called Nasfat. And they, they get, they're very upset with me when I say that it's born again Islam or charismatic Islam. And that's actually not my expression, I should say. I believe it's Ebenezer Obadare. I believe that came from him. But yeah, so a big part of my book is really talking about how good Pentecostals have been at at existing in the modern world, as we've talked about, and about that they very much understand that they're operating in a marketplace of ideas. Uh, And this is something that Nasfat has taken on. So they're an Islamic sect, and they basically got together in Lagos, the largest city in Nigeria and and in Africa. It's well over 20 million. And they saw these really massive hundreds of thousands of people can, can fit into some of these big outdoor Pentecostal churches. And they saw what was happening and the, the Yoruba people who are, who are mostly the people who live in and around uh, Lagos is very traditionally lived Christian and Muslim cheek by jowl. A lot of people will have a Muslim mother and a Christian father. And that's just quite normal. It's never, you know, been in conflict. So a lot of these, a lot of young people might've been going to a mosque on Friday to make mom happy and then church on Sunday with dad and grandma. 
And they realized that over time, these new Pentecostals who really only took off in Nigeria in the 70s, with all the promises of healthcare by miracle and, and prosperity and, and all these things that we've talked about, and the good music and the uplift, all of that stuff, people slowly stopped you know, going to mosque on Friday and they were just going to church on Sunday. And it wasn't even about doctrine or anything like that. It shows just how little and how tenuous of a connection that a lot of people have with regard to religious doctrine, that they're not there for that. They're not there because they feel strongly that this is the truth. They're there for other reasons. Yeah, I think a lot of people are probably just spiritual. So they might believe in higher power and good and evil and things like that. And then you can get that in the Abrahamic religions and, and other places as well. So it's much more about the way that Pentecostalism, I think, was making people feel. And NASFAT realized this and they saw that their numbers, a lot of kids suddenly stopped coming on Fridays. And so they decided to to basically Pentecostalize a little. And, and again, that's contentious and they, they don't like saying that, you know, especially when there is quite a hardline fundamentalist uh, Islamic movement in the north of the country. So they don't, you know, want to get blown up. But they certainly took some of the ideas of having these energetic sermons. So you might see an imam running up and, and down the aisles going praise Allah and, and being very that Pentecostal style, which is, as we saw with Paula White Kane earlier, that really frenetic, feel good, just getting people up really getting into things and bringing people along with them, getting people up and getting people excited and really feeling this. And they started getting more into ideas about prosperity and things like that. And it was basically because they've seen faith customers, I suppose you could say, just walking out the door into to the churches across the road. And this is their way of, of keeping people on board with them. Yeah. And I, I, I can say, having been born and raised in Mormonism, though I don't identify with that tradition anymore, there have been concerns among African Mormons that their conversions have just stopped or trickled. It's much harder for them now to compete with Pentecostalism. And, and so they've been asking the central church of Mormon church to have more flexibility in their services and the types of things that they can do, because that's not the way that Mormons traditionally have done things. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually chatting with some friends the other day and, and a friend of mine said, why on earth would anyone outside of America be a Mormon? Obviously, historically understanding the religious traditions, but Mormonism really coming from its place and time in America. But yeah, we've certainly seen that there was a very prominent Australian football player, Israel Flau, who was a Mormon. He's from a Pacific Island background and uh, he's converted to Pentecostalism. Now it's just has that amazing power. This is a great not so secret of religions, right? You don't convert atheists, you convert people who already believe. So that's why it's tearing through Latin America, because there's such a history of Catholicism there that it's much easier to, to just say to people, hey, you let God, you can come to our church, you can keep your saints and your mother Mary and stuff if that's important to you, but come here and we'll give you Catholicism plus. And they mm -hmm. seem to be doing that really well with, with other denominations of Christianity and, and indeed other religions. The head of the, the peak Muslim body in Nigeria said to me that that you know numbers are so hard to come by in, in such a large country but he believes that over the last decade or something they've lost a million muslims to christianity and interestingly quite a lot of the big prosperity preachers in nigeria grew up muslim and so yeah i think just around the world we're, we're really seeing pentecostals sweep up people who might be nominally christian or, or go to other churches and we're really seeing moves into asia now particularly into the philippines which is a very catholic country i th think that has a good chance of going the way of brazil and just pentecostals really coming in and, and sweeping through and speaking to people in the here and now. And uh, speaking of Asia, you also did some extensive reporting about Pentecostalism in South Korea, where it's identified as Presbyterianism, but in particular among people who had 
managed to escape from North Korea. Talk about that a little, please. Yeah, so it's really interesting. First of all, it's it's mostly Christians and Pentecostals within that group who are running the Underground Railroad to get out of North Korea. And understandably so, in, this is through China, where if they're getting caught, they're probably going to spend the rest of their life in a pretty unpleasant jail or, you know, potentially face the death penalty. And so it really takes a true believer to set up these organizations, human rights workers are for the amazing work they do and not necessarily going to put their lives on the line. So it's really people of faith who are running these. So along the way, and it depends how much you pay, basically how quickly you get along that railroad that you wind up in Seoul in South Korea. So sometimes it can take years and often the only thing that they'll let you read is, is a Bible and people are coming to God in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes they just have to. Someone's not going to keep you in a safe house and risk their life if you're not going to convert. But often people do see the light. It is a, a very big moment. Again, that demarcation, it's almost like being born again, just the fact that you're leaving North Korea. They, they get to the South and they're given some government money and and some training, but life is pretty hellish for most North Korean refugees in the South. They speak a, a dialect that's really outdated. It's almost walking into America and speaking like Elizabethan English at times. They can only really get menial work. One girl whose story that I followed, she was able to get a job at a cafe and then she said she didn't know what a latte was. She'd never experienced this. So that's about the best job that you can really get is working in a cafe and not understanding. They have horrific health problems and things like that. The state stipend isn't all that much. People are just overwhelmed. Seoul is huge technological mega city. It's very competitive. It's very capitalist and people just don't cope. The only place that they really can come together and, and get some semblance of a community does tend to be in mega churches. And then the mega churches, on the other hand, are trying to get them in the door as well because they're great fundraising tools. There is a real connection between Korea and America and a lot of Korean Americans and a lot of Americans, evangelicals, give money to these churches to help rescue people from North Korea. And so they, they want a certain amount of North Korean refugees to be sitting at their church and say, hey, look what we've done. And so it really becomes quite an awful system. The North Koreans call it showing your face or selling your face. You've got to turn up to church each week. They'll give you a, a bit of a small stipend so that you're seen at the church. There's a dentist at your church. He'll give you some free care. Women will drop off clothes and homewares and things that they've used and don't want anymore so that North Korean refugees can, can have it. And, and then what happens is this kind of becomes this life and they hate it, but it's really, for a lot of people, it's the only thing that they can do. So then they, they go church shopping because they'll have church services throughout the day. So you go around to all the different mega churches and sit there for two hours and get your money and a bit of clothes and a bit of food. That's pretty miserable for, for them. But it's, again, it's that, that sort of contradiction that I'm trying to unravel or at least just, just highlight in my book that it's a really awful system and in a lot of ways quite exploitative and stuff. But also at the same time, the churches are the only people providing this. It's often that the churches are the only game in town that are providing this kind of organized community for better and, and for worse. And there's also a lot of cross-pollination among the American Pentecostals. So there's this woman named Yanni Park, who has become a big figure in American right-wing circles. She's a former... She's the one that's in Rogan? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, she, so, she's um, very famous for embellishing stories is quite a big thing, telling people what they want to hear just so that you can get out of there. You've sold your face for the day. But yeah, she's quite famous for making simply fantastical things that just did not happen because people want to hear these stories. And the other thing also, though, is that for a North Korean uh, refugee in, in South Korea, that they feel like that if they are, if they're seen as a Christian, that they are perceived as more integrated, yeah. less weird and strange. And there actually is a similar dynamic 
in the United States as well with Latino immigrants to the United States. Historically, of course, they're coming from more Catholic countries, but a lot of the immigrants that are coming to the United States, they have been recently joining up with Pentecostal churches as a way of assimilating with working class whites that they work with in their various jobs or working class blacks that they work with. And so as a way of saying, I'm not one of those weird Catholics with the saints and the idols, as the Pentecostals often will deride them as. They do it as a way of showing their assimilation to American culture and rejecting their ancestral one. Yeah, not necessarily re rejecting. I think it's much more in the sense that an American academic whose name escapes me wrote about this a few years ago, and she called it spiritual citizenship. And I must say, it's not unique to America around the world. It's really the faith of migrants, whether it's internal migration or migration across borders. But yeah, there, there is certainly a sense within some Latino communities in the United States that Pentecostalizing and Americanizing your faith uh, makes you a little bit more American and a little bit less supportable. But, but once again, I, I don't know if it's this entirely cunning calculation. It's, it's again that Pentecostals just seem to speak to the here and now about health and wealth, all those sorts of things that if you're a struggling farm worker that's just moved here from El Salvador is going to, to be quite important to you. Mm -hmm. So you, you talk a bit about this idea of the strong Pentecostal belief in faith healing and things like that. One of the probably the, the best examples of that is this Pentecostal church in Northern California. It's called Bethel. It's in this smallish city called Reading. They're becoming very well known within the charismatic Christian world, but knowledge of them hasn't broken through to people who are not adjacent to that. Tell us a little bit about what uh, Bethel is and, and what do they do? Sure. So they are, they're a mega church in, in Reading, which is in the Pacific Northwest. Um, something like at least 11% of the town are members of the church, which is, is really huge. They have the last mayor of the town. They have the Board of Commerce. Anyone who's anyone in the town is basically a part of the church. They also have a very big biblical college. They really give these kids this idea that they have the power of faith healing and send them out in the community. And they're so in such a frenzy. I, I wrote about one woman in the town who started a anti-Bethel or a Bethel Watch Facebook group just because the kids came out one day, her, her mother was in a wheelchair and they came out and said, you can, can we lay hands and heal you? And she said, no. And they put their feet under the wheelchair and wouldn't let her move on and insisted on healing her anyway. And it's obviously quite traumatic feeling that powerless and feeling without your consent that people are doing this to you. And, and that is, shall we say, not uncommon in the town, charging into emergency rooms and trying to heal people. And Bethel reportedly recruits from medical conferences. They, they get some into the town and they have a lot of doctors in the town who work in the hospitals. Pentecostal or charismatic and go to the church. They recruit them from all over the country. So when people from various healing groups associated with the church charge into the emergency room, they don't tell them to get out. So these people will come around and try and lay hands and heal people in the local hospitals. And that's for people who aren't of faith. That is pretty upsetting. And I think understandably so. Yeah. And then they also have been talking about that they've been trying to create a program where they teach people how to resurrect people from the dead. This is controversial. I don't know if it's a program. There is a belief that some people within the church do believe. It was quite famous with one of the Bethel singers. I think her daughter called Olive died and they were trying to, to bring her back from the dead a couple of years ago and made a lot of mainstream news. They're much more into, even though everyone denies it, but there is 
there's evidence of things like grave soaking or grave sucking where you roll around and try to suck up the anointing of a deceased person into your spirit and laying hands on tombstones and things like that. That's certainly something that is is practiced in some circles within the church, but largely denied. When you ask them about it, people don't really like talking about it, even though there's there's a blog post from the wife of the Bethel Reading pastor, Bill Johnson, from 2006 or seven, talking about it. So it's definitely a spiritual element within the church, but they do not like talking about it with outsiders. Uh-huh. Yeah, not to some heathen Australian like yourself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, just before we wrap up here, I do want to talk about this sort of idea of, it's like this melding, and we talked about it briefly a bit earlier, this idea that the truth and reality, everything is fungible, basically. And that if you just believe enough, you can be healed through faith healing. Or if you want something enough, you can get it. It will be given to you. Like the, some of them have this phrase, become worthy, and then you will get the thing that you that you want. And, and Pentecostals, this belief certainly manifests in Donald Trump's persistent lack of concern about whether what he says is true or not. It seems like from his standpoint, it doesn't matter whether he is saying something that he knows not to be true, because it's like a spiritualized version of that phrase from Seinfeld. It's not a lie if you believe it. And, and we saw that also with Pentecostalism in the COVID-19 pandemic, especially through this guy named Sean uh, Foigt. And he's a Bethel guy. He's a, a musician there. He ran as a Republican for Congress, but he created a national brand for himself by deliberately holding concerts in defiance of local COVID-19 restrictions in a number of places. And uh, that was something that you encountered as well, a lot of skepticism. You mentioned when you were talking to the Bethel people, there was this woman that was talking to you about, oh, they are trying to set a narrative. And then you asked her, who is they and what is the narrative? And, and she couldn't really tell you. Yeah, very much. It's about it's about the vibe of the thing, right? It's a sense, and that's why it you know, allies fairly well with populist politics and it's not just Pentecostalism but all sorts of people I and mean, these are these are bigger questions than it's above my pay grade it's <laughs> far smarter people than me do this stuff for a living it's what you feel versus what someone else thinks and you know, Pentecostalism is really about feeling and what your vibe is on things and that's very much what's going on with things like MAGA and just the, the radical kind of right in general we're very anti- elitist and disdainful of expertise feeling besieged by people telling you about you know, your car's too big and you're contributing to climate change and you should get this vaccine and things like that and there's just a lot of yeah. people who just feel like they've, they've had enough of that and Pentecostalism is certainly the theological wing I suppose you'd say of that movement where it's just saying no you don't have to believe in all of that you can just believe in this and some people prefer that and what your feelings are that is the actual truth common sense whatever that means, that's more important than scientific studies or things that you can prove. And if somebody was, let's say, in some other Christian denomination, your subtitle of your book is how Pentecostal Christianity is taking over the world. If you're a Christian who's not that, what would you say to them? Or do you have any advice for them? I wouldn't have advice because I'm just trying to trying to be a good journalist and, and show, not tell. But Pentecostalism isn't exactly a denomination, but a lot of other Christian movements that are probably really seeing the infusion of Pentecostalism into their faith. You, you'll see Southern Baptists, I think, talking much more about the Holy Ghost and things like that now and trying to almost Pentecostalize some of their practice with the uplift and with the music and all those sorts of things. So I think it really is having an outsized influence and yeah, and this is 
I, I guess the the sadness, I think for me, and I'm not a person of faith myself, but is really seeing just so much of modern Christianity is really just about being that marketplace of ideas, being very consumer-led, being so much in and of our material world. And, and while it's very understandable, particularly for, for the working poor that we've talked a lot about, it is... I think, yeah, to my mind, I guess it is maybe unfortunate that it's taking on such a modern consumer-led market force, neoliberal, I hate the word, but role in in society. I'm a middle-class, liberal, white Westerner, so maybe that's just easy for me to say. So, yeah, it's probably not really for me to decide, but I suppose it's just a wider question of what is religion in the modern world and does Mm -hmm. it need to be so worldly, I, I think, to me, is an interesting thing. But again, it's not really, it's not really for me to decide, is it? Yeah, I guess that's a topic for another book, perhaps uh, by another person, I guess. All right. I appreciate the uh, discussion today. And let me just, for the last time, put up on the screen, your book is called Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. And we've been talking here today with Elle Hardy, the author, and she is on Twitter at E-L-L-E-H-A-R-D-Y. So uh, have you got anywhere else you want to plug before we go? Or is that um, no, this is just it for now. Yeah, I'm, unfortunately, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm always on Twitter. So if ever I'm putting things out, I definitely always post in there. Thank you so much for the chat. It's, it's been really cool chatting with you. Thanks for being here. Okay. All right. So that's the, the program for today. And these are serious issues that we're going to be talking about. How can you integrate people who have a viewpoint that, that the system has failed them? That's a question that we're going to be looking at. How can the system reform itself? And, and how can people who see this stop people from turning to extremists? Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donating links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.